We are going to be in Revelation 17, if you want to flip there. There are no handouts this week except for your scripture references. Because uh, we're really going to stick in, in, the, in Revelation 17 and 18. There's a couple of things I passed over last week that I want to mention. One of them was, was about the second beast that we studied last week in Revelation 13. 11 describes that beast as having horns like a lamb. Remember that? Well, it, later on in Revelation, you'll see that he's called a false prophet. And I meant to mention last week that I think the symbolism of him having horns like a lamb, which is symbolism associated with Jesus, you know, in Revelation, yet speaking like a dragon, which is Satan, is trying to warn us that he looks good. He looks like he's doing good. He... he he is able to do real miracles. And he's going to fool a lot of people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that there's basically a counterfeit trinity going on here. You've got Satan, who was the father. The Antichrist, who was the son, who was died and resurrected. And the false prophet who comes in power and does the miracles and is the teacher and is the one who is the mouthpiece for Satan and the Antichrist. People, I think the general public would think that when the Antichrist comes that it's going to be somebody terrible and ugly and scary and somebody that they're going to recognize as evil. It's going to be the complete opposite. Of that, this guy is going to bring world peace. You know, at least initially, he's somebody who will fool you, and that's why Jesus said, "Don't be fooled." We also talked about. We've been talking about the ten kings ruling over the world, and the world being divided into the ten kingdoms, um, which were represented by the ten toes in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and I've said these ten king the world is divided in ten kingdoms at the beginning of the tribulation. I don't want you to misunderstand my grammar there. It's not necessarily that the world gets divided at that time. It could that ten king division could happen thousands of years before the tribulation. There is no time frame for that. But at the time that the Antichrist rises to power you do have the ten kings. The other thing to think of, I'm trying to give you the options in case we're, you know, in case we're here at that time, is if you recall the statue in Daniel and the visions in Daniel about, that gave us the overview of this period of time, it talked about the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then it went on to the Roman Empire. But those first three were the main ones before you got to the fourth kingdom. If you think, look at the maps I've been giving you, all three of those covered roughly the same geographic area, right? Remember that prophecy is told from the perspective of God speaking to his people Israel about things that matter to them, their world, okay? It is entirely possible 
that the ten divisions or the ten kings, at least initially, only cover that geographic region. Okay? The Antichrist definitely ends up dominating the world. Okay? The fourth, but it's the fourth kingdom, and him as it's represented, the fourth kingdom is what dominates the world. It doesn't say the ten kings do. So, so just kind of be aware of the permutations that might be happening here so that you're not looking for one thing and the reality sneaks up and bites you in the back. Okay. When we left off last week, we were looking at the sequence of events that led up to the Antichrist's death and resurrection and the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We did the first half of the Great Tribulation. We'll finish the last half today. We only have three classes after today. So we'll finish. So you need to be thinking about about what's next. But um, now I'm taking a break. <laughs> That's right. I'm taking a break. So so this we have this week and then three more after this one. At the time of these kings, though, the city of Babylon is a great city that rules the kings of the earth. And the story of Babylon takes up two whole chapters in Revelation. It is very, very important for some reason. Okay. And we need to look to see what that reason might be. So we're going to start with the spiritual view, which is God's perspective of the, of the events that will happen in, in, on earth. Start with Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, we recognize that one right off the bat, right? The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. We obviously recognize the beast, okay? As, as the beast that was called out of the sea by Satan. So that's the Antichrist and his it was representative of the Antichrist, his kingdom. And then, of course, you've got the ten, the ten horns, which are the ten world kings. It, this is one of those passages where you have to skip around because it's interpreted later. So skip down to verse 7 and read the interpretation. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. We studied that last week, that that refers to the spiritual picture of the Antichrist and of that spirit of lawlessness that will fill him, that the spirit of lawlessness that is currently being restrained in the abyss. 
And so it's that spirit of lawlessness. And the Greek word for lawlessness there is anomia. And that word could just as easily be translated wickedness, which probably means more to us. Okay, It's, it's an unrestrained wickedness. So that spirit of wickedness exists, existed. That's it. You know, it was. It now is not because it's being restrained, this particular spirit. And it will come out, out of the abyss and inhabit the Antichrist when he, when he arises. Go on with verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an ape and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And this is where people will say, will differ with me in interpretation. They'll say it's not the spirit of wickedness that was and is not and is to come. It's the Roman Empire that was and is not and is to come. And part of why they say that is because the woman sits on seven hills and Rome is the city of seven hills. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that. For one thing, if you ever saw those hills in Rome, you'd know they could never be confused with mountains. Okay. The, the second thing is that right here in the interpretation it says those seven mountains are seven kings. All right. It has nothing to do with Rome. All right. Now... It could be the Roman Empire comes back again, and, and maybe I've got it wrong, but I don't think the Roman Empire is in the abyss. That, you know, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Spirits are in the abyss. We know that from Scripture. So I, I think I've probably got a leg, more legs to stand on than, than, the other, than the other theory. But when you look at what the mountains are the, and the fact that there's seven kings, that makes sense. Because symbolically in scripture, mountains represent kingdoms. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue in Daniel 2.32. This is in your scripture references. It says, The head was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if you continue on in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 2 is the interpretation. And it says, then there will be a fourth kingdom. And he's talking about the, the, the part of the statue that's at the bottom, the, the, leg, the legs and the feet and the toes. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces all these previous kingdoms in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it will be a divided kingdom okay we're talking about the kingdom of the antichrist here 
But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you, saw, as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in it that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure. And we, in our study in Daniel, we know that, that a stone in prophecy, you know, 99% of the time means Jesus. Jesus is the stone, not cut with human hands, that utterly destroys the Gentile nations that ended with the ten kings and the Antichrist. And Jesus' kingdom is the mountain, the stone that grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That's, that's the millennial kingdom. That's, that's Jesus' kingdom, not the kingdom of the Antichrist. The, this is another place that um, people say the Roman Empire will come back because it says that the fourth kingdom will exist at the time of the Antichrist, at the time of the end. And they saw that the first kingdom was Babylon, second was Persian, third one was Greece, the fourth one was, the one that rose up after that was Rome. But we've been saying, no, it needs to not be called the Roman Empire, it needs to be called like the Imperialist Empire. Because the statue, you know, he didn't see a vision of a statue that came down to the knees, had a gap at the knees, and then had feet. You know? He saw one whole continuous kingdom. So that fourth kingdom has to be continuous. Yes, it started with the Romans, but it continues now to this day and will continue to the end. That's why we need to give it some other name. Okay. The, the Roman Empire brought in a new form of government, you know, the Republic, which certainly exists to this day. I think perhaps it's that form of government that the imperialist kingdom represents. But anyway, back to Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So there's that verse that says they receive their authority for one hour. Okay, That doesn't mean the world wasn't already divided up into ten pieces. But the very next verse says they have one purpose. So even though their time is brief, they have been given authority. These ten kings have been given authority with the Antichrist for one purpose. And that is that they give their power and authority to the beast. It is the way that all of the world will come under the dominion of the Antichrist. They will already have their power base and they are going to give it to the Antichrist. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with Him are called, are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. And then He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The harlot, as you, we're going to see in a minute, is the city of Babylon. She at this point from this imagery 
she is sitting astride all of the peoples, the nations. She is the world capital and center of commerce at this point, at the time of the Ten Kings. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, this is some startling information. I was, you know, reading along and I'm thinking, here's the capital of the Antichrist. And then I get to this part. He hates her. He and the ten kings hate the city of Babylon. What's that about? Well, this, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the next verse says, you know what? God is totally in control. All of these events are under the control of God. Everything's happening to fulfill his purpose until all of his prophecy has been fulfilled. All of his word has been fulfilled. So let's look at the imagery. These ten kings, the beast, and it's talking in very symbolic terms here. It doesn't say the ten kings. It says, it says the ten horns. Okay, so it's talking symbolically. I'm in verse 16. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, again symbolically, will hate the harlot, which is a symbol for Babylon, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Because the sentence is clearly couched in symbolic terms, we can very safely assume that the ten kings do not eat the flesh of the city, right? Okay, physically. We, we can, and, and common sense just tells you that. So that tells us, and they most likely don't burn her with fire physically. It wouldn't make sense. This is all symbolic. So now we need to step back and say, well, how, how are we going to interpret this? Well, this one is easy. <laughs> we can do this one. Think about it. It's saying, who's the city? Babylon. What are they going to do to her? They're going to strip her naked. Go back and look. What was she wearing? What was she wearing? Purple. Royalty. What else was she wearing? Scarlet. Another expensive. Gold. Pearls. Precious stones. Riches. When they strip her naked, what are they taking? The riches and the power for themselves. That one is a slam dunk. <laughs> we know what that one means. Okay. What we know for sure is that the ten kings and the Antichrist hate her because when they come to power, she has control over the wealth of the world. And they want it. And they're going to take it. And they completely take the power for themselves. If her flesh is eaten, what would that leave? Skeleton. Think symbolically. Some eat the flesh, you leave the skeleton, right? I think what that says is saying is that they do not want to destroy the infrastructure of world commerce. They just want the gain to come to them. That infrastructure exists already when they come to power. And they have participated, you know, obviously in making it that way. 
I think this is telling us they do not destroy the world economic system, the monetary system. They, they leave the infrastructure in place. They want the spoils, but there's no point in doing the work, right? Okay, there's no point in, in rocking the boat. She's a, as they can call, say in business, a cash cow. Okay, <laughs> and and they will burn her with fire. That continues the imagery of completely consuming her resources. There's a, a corresponding passage in Daniel 11, verse 42 where it's talking about the Antichrist and his military campaigns and everything. And it says, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, as we already saw. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Okay. So we, we had already read a verse earlier about how actually in the same part of Daniel about how the Antichrist when he comes to power he, he gains this wealth and then begins distributing you know largesse to, to people to build his power base he, he pays them off to build his power base so the great city that was once control, that once controlled the commerce and riches of the ten kings and the Antichrist has now been completely taken over by them Babylon becomes the capital of their kingdom and the Antichrist truly then has the mouth of a lion. Remember the lion was Babylon and that was the mouth and speaking place of the Antichrist. So presumably laws come from there. We, I want to go back to Zechariah 5 verse 5 and, and look at the imagery about Babylon. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, It's an, it's an ephah, a measuring basket going forth. And again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up and, and a woman was sitting inside the ephah, inside the measuring basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women, women coming out with the wind on their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, Babylon Babylonia. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Clearly, Babylon has a big role to play. Now, you will find very popular interpretation in theory is that, re that these two chapters in Revelation are talking about two different Babylons. That one chapter is talking about a spiritual Babylon also called ecclesiastical Babylon which they interpret as a world religion and, and that the other chapter is about the city Babylon and so you will find great systems of interpretation that say the, what the antichrist and the beasts hate is the church Babylon the false religion that arises after the saints have been raptured because they believe the rap this goes along with the belief that the rapture occurs 
sometime before all this. And that there's a false world religion that comes up and the Antichrist and the beast hate that false world religion. They destroy that. And, and then that the next chapter is the one talking about the city of Babylon. I, I don't think that's what this is saying here. I mean, we've just read it together. I think the angel very clearly says this is a city that rules over the kings of the earth. He, and, and when he says that, he's not talking in symbolic terms, I don't think. So that's my opinion, but you do need to know that there, there are two, two ways to interpret this. So let's go back to Revelation 17.4 and read the rest of the spiritual description of Babylon. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So Babylon is pictured richly, even royally clothed with the riches of the world. In her hand is a gold cup. And this cup is filled with the abominations of the world. Now, abominations is not a word we use in everyday language. Okay, Abominations is a very strong word and in Leviticus 8 and lots of other places in the Old Testament the Lord uses that word and he warns Israel not to do any abominations and I'm going to give you a quick list of the abominations that are listed in scripture as abominations And most of these, you're going to say, you know, you're going to tick them off. Okay, I don't do that one. Check. I don't do that one. Check. Somewhere in here, you're going to find yourself. You don't think you are, but you are. Okay? Here's the list. The list of abominations includes incest, having sex with a woman and also her daughter or granddaughter or a a family relative. Having sex with your neighbor's wife or during a woman's monthly period. Sacrificing your children to an idol. Homosexual relations or presenting yourself as being homosexual by cross-dressing. That's listed in the Bible. It's listed not only in the Old Testament, it is listed in the New Testament in Romans as well. Having sexual relations with an animal or dancing lewdly in front of an animal. Worshipping idols as well as the idol itself is an abomination, whether you worship it or not. Bringing an offering to God that you earned through sin. Taking back a woman you previously divorced who has since remarried. Being unjust in trade. Measuring with false weights. Usurious lending. Lending it at exorbitant rates. Here's one that will get you. 
being devious in any way. <laughs> so that got the whole class. <laughs> so. Those of you who might have found yourself in one of those earlier ones and utterly despaired, you're, we're right in there with you, okay? We have all committed abomination in the sight of God. The point is to stop, not to do it knowingly and willingly, and to cast ourselves on His grace. There's three Proverbs that give good summaries of the Lord's definition of abomination. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, the list of abominations not only includes doing those yourself, it includes marrying, intermarrying with people who do those things. It also includes, it also includes viewing people doing those things, which should give you pause the next time you turn on your television. So in other words, there's absolutely no way that anybody that's ever existed can be without being an abomination. What a great statement. There is no way that anybody who has ever existed could exist without being an abomination. That is why the good news of Jesus is such good news. Let's look at our Proverbs. Proverbs six sixteen. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. See if you find yourself here. I'm in, I'm in the very first one. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. Proverbs 28.9 He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 16.12 It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. God gives kings their power. And he holds them to a higher standard. An abomination is anything that is variance with the two basic rules of God's law that are binding on us all. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Pretty much sums up. Right? So in Revelation 17, the city of Babylon has drunk deeply of all of the abominations that we listed above. And she has delighted. She has rejoiced in the torture and death of the saints. There was a... There was a uh, verse that we read that says that during this time, people who kill a Jew think they are doing service to God. People think they're, well, people will be fooled and think they are following the true Messiah because the Antichrist sets him up, himself up as the true Messiah. Absolutely. There have always been 
people profess to, who profess to kill the nation of Israel. And now we're getting a little taste of what that's like with nations who are professed to kill the Christians. It, it, we're, we're getting a taste of what that feels like. And, and that will get nothing but worse. Okay, Because when we get to the end of the times, the Christians and the Jews, they're right there in the same bucket together, as we should be. Okay, We're both getting tortured. And this woman Babylon, the city, is portrayed as being drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. We've read several prophecies um, that specifically state that the Antichrist is going to have power over the saints during those last three and a half years. And it looks from this description that we just read... That the sentence, that the law that decrees the death of the saints comes from Babylon. That it originates from Babylon and many of, many of us will die there. According to Zechariah 13.8, two-thirds of the Jews and presumably the Christians as well, you know, two-thirds of Israel will perish during this time. That's, that's a lot. Listen to what Daniel 11 says the Antichrist does after he sets up the abomination that causes desolation. So this is immediately what he does as the great tribulation begins. Daniel 11 verse 32. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. If you are alive during that time, this is where you want to stand. This is who you want to be. You want to be one of the people who rises up and gives insight to the many. You may never be in a position to change the course of history. But you are always in a position to save a soul. And that's what this verse is about. Even at this time, if you stand up, even for only a brief time, you will be listened to. And someone will be saved because of you telling them what's going on and witnessing to them about the real power of God. So this terrible time of suffering occurs... In this second three and a half years, because the first three and a half years, Israel was being protected, remember? Look at Jeremiah 30, verse 5. That time of refuge for Israel comes to an end. For thus says the Lord, I have seen, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great and there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. And that particular passage in Jeremiah goes on to encourage Israel to persevere 
through the time of Jacob's distress because ultimately the Lord will come and save them and restore them. But you know what? If you're going through it and have no hope of living through it, you're being tortured, you're being persecuted, you're being starved to death because you can't eat any, or buy or sell or you know, you've got hailstones falling out of the sky. I mean, that probably is not a lot of solace okay, to, to humans. You just, if, if you have a puny spirit, you're not going to make it through this time. Now is the time to nurture and grow your spirit and your spiritual depth that you have so that you can overcome the physical. Matthew 24:15 is what Jesus said. And we, we've read this before. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And it goes on to talk about, you know, don't go back in the house and even get your sweater. Just run. When you see that, the great tribulation starts. He's talking to, the, to Israel. He's saying, that's when you know your time of refuge is over. He's always talking to Christians too. That's right. But he's always talking to Christians too. That's why I think it's so... And probably at the very bottom of the, the difference between how I interpret scripture and prophecy and how many others do, you either think the message to Israel and to the Christians is one and the same. That we are the same people. That Christians were simply grafted into Israel as surely as a plant is grafted in. Or you think that there is one path for Israel and another path for Christians. And that ultimately they kind of meet at the end. But if you, follow, if you really look at the teaching of people who believe that, they never really meet up at the end. They don't, well, they don't ever make them equal. They always have the Christians being over the Jews, even at the end, in the eternal order. Okay? So. How does that justify with the fact that they're the chosen people? How is that justified with the fact that they're chosen people? I'm not going to defend their view. (laughs) I'm I'm telling you what I read in Scripture, but that. You know, people who think that that it's a very fundamental difference in approach. In fact, God did have a different path for the Jews and the Christians in the way that you know they see things until the end. Yes, He did have a different path. We were never in the original picture. Okay, they had a lot of path before we got there, but when they rejected the Messiah and we accepted Him, God did a miracle. And grafted us into that promise. From that point forward, I don't see how anybody can strip us off from the promises to Israel. And I think the promises to Israel in the Old Testament foresaw that. Over and over, what happens to Israel is a picture of an individual Christian. As you see the life of the Jewish people, God paints a picture of Christians as an individual too, and how he deals with us as Christians. Absolutely. You can, all of the prophecy, the moral teaching, the call to holiness, the call to repentance, 
all of these messages, as you point out, to Israel are equally valid to us individually. And I want you to hold that thought of us being collective, having a collective identity, but experiencing it as individuals, because we're going to talk about that in the very last lesson that we do. That, that's important. All right, back to where we were. So over the, anyway, over the last three and a half years, that's okay. That's good stuff. I like discussion. So over the last three and a half years, almost all of the saints are killed. There's lots of prophecy about the distress of Israel at that time in, in the Old Testament. I mean, I mean, you can see it everywhere. Isaiah 3 is a great example if you want to read that on your own. But we're going to read an excerpt from Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 11:4. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sells them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs. The one staff I called favor, and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. So that's a whole kind of apocalyptic, very strange little segment of prophecy there. But it's talking about the frustration with God trying to govern Israel with a staff of favor and union. He's trying to do good things for them and they are fighting him tooth and nail all along the way. They have three leaders who are fighting him constantly. I'm weary of you, you're weary of me. Okay. It's an ongoing relationship, and, and we ha- I have no idea who these three shepherds are. I, I don't think it ever says in Scripture anywhere who these three shepherds are. Um, but it is clear that the Lord just says, I'm sick and tired of this. Go for it. Okay, You get what you chose. And he's going to punish Israel for her apostasy. Verse 10, I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Does anybody out remember 30 shekels of silver? It was the blood price for Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And, and there again, you remember Judas was the one who was paid those 30 pieces of, of silver. And he went and hung himself in the potter's field. Then the Lord said to me, 
throw it to the potter. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now that implies that at some point after the rejection of the Messiah, Judah and Israel will again fall into civil war. And remember that Zechariah was a prophet who lived, he was a, a, a prophet during the captivity. Okay, So Israel and Judah by his lifetime had, had, had already had hundreds of years of civil war and strife and had been utterly destroyed and taken into captivity. So this breakage, breaking of the brotherhood between Judah and Israel must relate to a future time, a prophecy that's not yet fulfilled. And the Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. This I take to be a prophecy of the Antichrist. Or of the leader of Israel at that time. Okay, maybe one of the ten kings. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. So we'll just have to wait and see how that ends up being fulfilled. That has not been fulfilled yet. When the suffering starts and the tribulation begins, God doesn't mess around. He does not tarry. Revelation 14 verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying in midheaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. So we're going to read through chapter 14 for a while because this is what happens next. When, whenever God talks about an hour, He's talking about a very short period of time. The time of judgment has come. Daniel 12.1 gave us an overview of this time period. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So God puts in motion his final judgments on the wicked. And the period that we studied about, the day of the Lord, begins. And the first judgment is of the utter sin and depravity of Babylon. Revelation 14.8. To continue in Revelation 14. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This is Babylon's spiritual state. She hasn't yet been destroyed, as we'll, as we'll see in a few verses. But this is saying she is fallen, what her choice is, okay, that she has fallen away from God. She, is, she has been judged. Look at verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. 
And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So when you get to that's pretty strong language. When, when you get to that point, you are going to have to have courage. You are going to have to reject the mark of the beast. That means... If not immediate torture and death, it certainly means starvation for you and your family. You're going to have to choose this for you and your family. But compare your fate to those who choose the Antichrist. Those who choose the Antichrist drink the wine of the wrath of God mixed full strength and suffer eternal torment without rest. That's very different than... The eternal fate of those of us who choose to give up our lives as, as being nothing. Okay, Look at, at verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors... For their deeds follow with them. Many saints will die, but they'll be specially blessed and rewarded for persevering through this terrible time. Remember the 144,000 saints that we studied before that we decided were representative of all believers? Uh, Back up in Revelation 14 to verse 1, 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So you can see that this is a spiritual view. The 144,000 have persevered and have received the name of Jesus and of the Father. Remember the promises to those who overcome? These saints, these 144,000, have not committed abominations. They have not trafficked with the woman Babylon or any other harlot, quote, idol like her. They have followed Jesus faithfully, and for this they are precious in the eyes of God and of the Lamb. They are first fruits, a gift purchased at a great price. Revelation seven nineteen. I'm seven verse nine, I'm sorry. So we're backing up in Revelation to read some more about those who have died at this point. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. A couple of lessons ago we read about an angel that was sent to harvest the earth. Remember him? And I told you there were two angels and that I was just had no idea where they fell in chronology. But that the, I was taking the first angel that harvested the earth. And he harvested grain and put him at the beginning of the tribulation. And that I was going to take the second angel and put him at the beginning of the great tribulation because of what he was harvesting. Let's read what he harvests. Revelation 14, back to 14, verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That, I think, is a spiritual view of the Great Tribulation. And that's why I placed that angel there. Some people think that that flow of blood occurs at the Battle of Armageddon. And, you know, I guess you could think that. But I personally think that this harvest and the crushing of the wine of the grapes is the crushing of all evil. Okay? I I think evil has ripened and matured. And the Lord is harvesting it. Okay. And so I think it's a much broader picture than just the Battle of Armageddon. As the final judgments of wrath begin, great praises are offered in heaven. Remember that, I don't know if you remember, but there was one, one of the judgments where we saw martyrs under the altar of God. And it was a delayed judgment because nothing happened. All that happened was... They, they said, God, when are you going to take vengeance for us? And he said, wait 
until the full number of your brethren have come in? Well, we're, we're there. Okay. Look at Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished we're going to stop there